Hi, I'm Bob Reef, and this is The View from San Diego Sport Innovators as we meet remarkable people in the San Diego lifestyle business. As everyone knows, there's something special about San Diego, 3.2 million people, lots of sunny days, but our ecosystem is also special. We're bounded on the west by the Pacific Ocean, on the east, of course, by our deserts and, and mountains, to the south by Mexico, and to the north by nice green boundary called Camp Pendleton that keeps Orange County and LA well to the north of us. And there's something about the stew of citizenship, of healthy living, of the ocean, the mountains, the deserts, and being somewhat insulated that's produced some really remarkable lifestyle brands. And the people that created those brands are obviously local San Diegans as well. So we hope that you join us over this series of podcasts as we meet these people up close and different. Looking forward to it. I'm Bob Reef. I'm from San Diego Sport Innovators. We're a business development organization here in San Diego County. Uh, our uh, place in the marketplace is, is certainly, uh, we invented it. It's called Sport and Active Lifestyle uh, Industry, also known as the San Diego Lifestyle Industry. And within our business development group, we have all kinds of companies, big ones to little ones, and uh, blessedly including uh, Viore in our group. So um, our podcast is uh, called uh, View from the Bus. That would be my bus, which is a vintage Volkswagen, not the Greyhound or the other ones going up and down out here. But uh, driving, uh, you know, like I'm doing through life now in the, in the slow lane in the bus is lots of times to reflect and look up and down PCH. And everywhere I look, I see something that I remember either from a kid when I was making my own skateboards and then uh, Hobie Alter stole our idea and became a millionaire or I don't know. Joe, I can't claim to ever uh, drop in on your space, but uh, it's really a marvel to look back and celebrate these these brands. And, uh, you know, they go quite a ways back. I mean, the first time that I think I saw the San Diego lifestyle exported might have been through Hobie. And it wouldn't be fair to say just San Diego because he's, he's up the road a little bit uh, in Orange County. But, but it uh, certainly might be, um, geez, I don't know, Rubio's. You know, taking the, the Baja fish taco and, and telling people that there was a Baja and there's a fish taco and it's damn good. And they exported that all around the United States. And it seems like after that, there's kind of a cascading of, of brands that really came from things that we loved. And I'm thinking about Fernando and Santiago at Reef as an example. A couple of immigrant guys came to town and started making sandals and really hit a home run or or even Uggs, people don't know that the Uggs in, in uh, North America started right here in, in San Diego. Or even Sanook or over on the other side uh, with uh, golf coming from TaylorMade, a totally native brand here, and uh, Callaway also. So there's been a lot going on in our, in our neighborhood, and this was all for a long time viewed as a cottage industry. But nowadays, times have changed, and the uh, Sport and Active Lifestyle Network now comprises about $3.2 billion in economic impact as of 42,000 employees and um, involves about 1,200 enterprises all identifying themselves as part of the San Diego lifestyle. So it's really it's really pretty amazing, you know, and certainly times have changed. But, um, you know, when people in my my age group, I don't know, gosh, I feel like the, the dinosaur looking up at the asteroid, you know, <laughs> when it comes to brands and wondering, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. But um, today we really have a different opportunity because, uh, you know, the asteroid itself is here representing this new little brand that's called Viore. Uh, 
I don't know, Joe, I don't know if we can call this a digitally native brand, but it damn near is. If you could have got it to market a, a little bit slower, it would have been. <laughs> but uh, you intersected uh, with San Diego and your concepting, I guess, somewhere around in 2011 or 12 or 13. And so let me introduce you, Joe. I know a lot of people know you, Joe Kudla, founder of Viore. Awesome, awesome brand. And our, our purpose today, Joe, is to uh, kind of walk through the uh, oh, the birthing process, and no matter what you're birthing, it seems like it's always painful, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll walk through the process and, you know, share some story with uh, a generation people probably following even behind you, uh, thinking about starting their businesses and wondering how to take their passion uh, and, and convert it into a business. And I hope a sustainable business like you've done with Fiore that will you know, continue to be profitable and within the, the, the white lines that you set out for. It's really a fantastic story. So, so howdy, Joe. Let's get started. Um, um, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's just always such an honor to connect with you and really happy to be, uh, to be chatting today. Well, thanks, Joe. I feel exactly the opposite. It's uh, great to connect with a successful young entrepreneur like you and, uh, and really share the story. So, I mean, where do you want to start? Uh, do you want to start back when you and Chris were thinking about the apparel business or you, you yeah. choose? Yeah, we can go back. Um, I mean, that was the, the, the seed was planted when, when I met Chris, um, we're talking about Chris Miller, who is a hall of fame skateboarder, you know, arguably one of the best pool skaters of all time. And Chris and I met through the San Diego yoga community up here in North County. And, um, I mean, Chris was kind of dealing with some different ailments related to skateboard injuries. I was dealing with some pain in my back from playing football and lacrosse my whole life. And we were kind of an unlikely couple and we, uh, we became really good buddies, um, you know, because we, we'd keep running into each other in these classes. We shared a lot of mutual friends and then we started surfing together and, you know, the rest was kind of history, but, but it was during those early times where, where Chris and I would sit around talking about, you know, this idea for a brand. And, um, you know, it, we were so inspired, I think, both of us by this community that we're so blessed to call home, you know, Encinitas and kind of the way people live their lives here. And, um, and that was first and foremost. It was just, you know, this kind of aspirational Southern California lifestyle where people were really active, living their life in and out of the water, you know, a relatively conscious community. People care about their lifestyle choices. They care about their health. They care about their spirituality. And um, all in all, it was just a, a recipe for what we believed could be a really cool brand. And, and we, we knew it would be really authentic because it was just an extension of how we were living our lives and how our friends were living their lives. And we felt like there was a big kind of like gap in the market. You know, you hear that all the time from entrepreneurs, but in our case, it was really true. You know, you had the, you had the big, big active brands, you know, the Nikes, the Under Armors and you know, those guys are typically inspired by team sport athletics and, um, you know, this, this will to be better and, and win at all costs. I mean, it's, a, it's the competitive sports. And, 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 and also, um, I would even second that with saying that they draw inspiration from kind of more urban and kind of street culture. Whereas, you know, we were here out on the beach and we just didn't feel like those brands were as relatable as they were when, you know, I was, you know, in my teens thinking I was going to be the next Walter Payton um, as soon as I kind of gave up on that dream and I just kind of shifted my priorities towards having fun, living and living a fun lifestyle, um, a healthy lifestyle, continuing to do the things I love and, 
and finding yoga as a, as a, as a tool to really, um, you know, facilitate that. Um, I just didn't feel like those brands were relating to how we were living our lives. And so you wouldn't see a lot of people wearing that product in the gym around here. You wouldn't see people wearing that product as much in yoga classes and definitely not on the beach. And so, you know, the next best thing was kind of like board shorts from surf brands, which are great products. Yeah. I grew up wearing board shorts, but they didn't really meet our needs from an active lifestyle standpoint. Um, you know, they weren't designed to deal with sweat and odor and they weren't designed to move with your body um, in the way that you need to move it in a yoga studio or in a gym. And so, you know, our, our vision for the brand was to build, you know, athletic performance apparel, but that was, that was inspired by this kind of more effortless, casual coastal California lifestyle and bring that kind of DNA that, that maybe was more common in say a surf brand into premium performance apparel in the way that kind of hadn't been done. And, so that was really the vision. And um, gosh, that was, as you pointed out, back in 20, 2012, I think we started having these conversations. And you know, by 2015, we had launched product into market. And, and it's been a really fun adventure ever since. Well, it certainly has. You know, just, just a, a little bit about the positioning, though. I mean, of course, I think we're selling Chris short, right? I mean, he has a a pretty uh, long history of success in our business with footwear company, outerwear company. And and I think early sensitivity about uh, these values you were talking about. So it was a really nice intersection when you guys, when you guys met. Um, but um, because of our surf background, our proximity to the ocean, which is virtually in sight from here, um, how come you just didn't become a surf brand? <laughs> well, you know, as much as like, I would like to believe that, um, you know, surf would be authentic for me. It just is not the case. I mean, I, I always have loved surfing, but, um, you know, I, I was an athlete growing up and yoga was really the inspiration that, that started us on this trajectory. You know, Chris and I did talk a lot about it and we kind of chuckled to ourselves that, you know, there's, I think at the time that the, the data we were looking at, there was like four or 5 million people that actually surfed in the United States. And when you compared that to yoga, you know, I think there was 30 million people practicing yoga, 30% of them were men and men's were, men was the fastest growing um, demographic within yoga participation. And then to second that, I think there was a stat that said 84 million people would, pr would try yoga within the next like 24 months. So, you know, you think about men's yoga as a, as a category more than 8 million guys doing yoga, um, no brands speaking to them, like literally zero. And then you look at the surf market, there's only 4 million or half, half the number of people actually surfing in the business, in, in the, in the United States. And, um, I mean, the list of brands goes on a mile long, um, mm -hmm. kind of look at that as like a red ocean or more competitive marketplace, whereas there was just unlimited opportunity in the yoga space. And what's, What's funny is that Viore does not identify itself as a men's yoga brand. It, it was the original inspiration and the kicking, kicking off point, but we've really evolved to be a, a broader active um, lifestyle brand. Well, I, I th the thing that struck me about it at the, in the time frame, you know, in our accelerator, Joe, we see whatever, we graduate uh, 10, maybe 20 companies a year, new companies. So we see a lot of proposals, but the, the basis of research for them often goes like this. 
there are 180 million men in America and they all wear shoes. So if we could just get 1% of the market, we would be happy, right? It's a completely bogus analysis. And so, I mean, for, for young companies looking at it the way you did, looking at it analytically, really zeroing in on the consumer from the very beginning, identifying from the beginning and identifying in those uh, simple analyses that everybody learned in school is that really the competitive floor was wide open for you. It was, and, you know, we did learn and we can talk more about our growth story, but we did learn that positioning as a men's yoga brand was actually, you know, I don't want to call it a flawed premise, but it wasn't without its challenges. Let's put it that way. And we did evolve the brand to be more authentic to how we were living our lives. And, and, um, and it eventually kind of, we found our engine of growth and we found our voice that, that really worked, but, you know, we saw it as a huge opportunity probably, you know, would have been a very difficult path if we would have just lasered in exclusively on men's yoga. Um, mm -hmm. But we listened to our customer, we listened to what the market was telling us, and we evolved and adapted and found our little, found our rhythm. Well, I think that, you know, the, the, one of the purposes here, right, is to I'll say that, that I think that was a pivotal moment. And also your you know, you're you're starting to think about retail. I remember back talking to you and Chris about, you know, if you're going to identify with the the spear of the arrow is going to be men's apparel. Looking at the the selling field and, and where you can buy men's yoga apparel it was also very limited at that time as well, right? If you're a guy to be come downtown work out here in, in a yoga studio, you're kind of forced back on the athletic brands. Yes, that's a hundred percent the case. I mean. I think that's part of the reason Lululemon has been so successful. There was no distribution for $100 yoga pants for women. It just didn't exist. Sports Authority, Dicks, they weren't going to carry that price point. They wouldn't have believed in it. Um, but, but Chip saw an opportunity and he knew he had to build it direct. And in large part, we kind of experienced the same thing with men's kind of premium men's active apparel. Um, it, it just wasn't a focus for a lot of wholesale partners around the country. And we were forced to build it ourselves and, and vertical retail, while it's not a massive part of our business, it was kind of our, we, we got our start with a, with a pop-up shop in Encinitas. And that was really the, the flag we planted in our native soil here. And um, it's what kind of built the camaraderie and the community and, um, and led kind of got us, got us, um, it, it, it was that first step that kind of projected us forward. Um, and, yeah, and I remember going to a couple of those events, Joe, and, and seeing the, the crossroads of art, you know, and, and uh, contemporary retailing also very understated with your product and, and a mix of amazing uh, young people. It was, those were really, they were really fun events and they were yeah, completely crucial. We <laughs> We had so much fun in those early days and we wanted to be a platform for emerging artists in our local community. A lot of them were our friends. And, um, and so we, we had this idea of utilizing art, things that were very inspiring to us and things that we looked to that inspired the design and the direction of the, of the brand. Um, and we wanted to, to bring people together to, to celebrate that art and, and in turn expose people to our product. And so we would, we would have events where we would do a yoga class. We'd move all of our furniture out of the shop. We'd do a big yoga or fitness class. Um, and then we would, we would invite the community in. We'd have these art shows and hundreds and hundreds of people would show up. And 
We would bring together local kind of beer and wine vendors. We'd bring together all kinds of different people that wanted to contribute to these events. And so we didn't really have to spend any money to do it. And they were a huge hit in the community. And, um, you know, it tuned a lot of people into the Viore brand and what we were doing. And it wasn't long after you'd start seeing people walking around on the street wearing Viore. It was, it was really cool to see. Hey, Joe, do you remember the first time you saw somebody that you didn't know who bought a Viore item walking by? Yeah, I think I practically tackled them. <laughs> but it was like so, it was so exciting in the early days. And, and, you know, I would love to engage in conversation just about where they got it and how, how it worked for them. And, you know, just those, those little pieces of information, while it's a very small sample size, they're really informative. Um, and it was conversations with customers just out on the street that in, kind of informed the decision to do more customer surveys online and reach out to more people and get more feedback. And those were very instrumental in kind of guiding us into an evolving kind of brand strategy. Well, I, I think one of the uh, the brilliant and absolutely necessary moves these days is, is being you know consumer facing. It was a little bit harder back in the day uh, for us. But, you know, before we do this, I want to tell you about Jeff Kelly and I back in the Sanook uh, shoe days. Uh, he and I, we just launched them. They were for sale in Asia first, and we were walking down the street in Hong Kong. Here came this, this really great-looking contemporary girl, and she was wearing our shoes. So we were a little bit worried about how do you, you know, approach somebody about this, you know, two guys going, hey, you got great shoes, you know? <laughs> so we, we got up the guts and we said, hey, we love your shoes. Where did you get them? She said, oh, I love them too. I borrowed them from my mother. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we didn't exactly have the same experience you did, but sooner or later we saw it. Uh, but, but you know, I, I think, Joe, the, uh, one of the questions I want to ask you is your, your brand is born into uh, uh, an era of multi-channel selling. And, uh, you know, and I would say, you know, even companies born five years before you, if you're going to have any success, you, you, were, you were, of course, making products for consumers, but you were also making them for your retail network. Like, you know, our, our friend Dave Nash is one of your customers at San Diego. Um, in, in my product array, he couldn't sell $250 sandals, so we would try to make sandals that he could sell for $49.95 or something, you know. And uh, But uh, I think now when with the, the birth of, of brands approximately in your time frame, 2010, 15, somewhere in there, I mean, it was really brand focused right from the get go. And you you had a direct connection with the consumer and you still do. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that was uh, almost out of necessity to survive. I, I would like to take credit and say that it was written in our business plan that we were going to be this high flying D to C brand. But the reality was we believed that wholesale would be kind of our uh, a, a great building block for the brand that we could then kind of use to to introduce the brand um, in in more of a kind of a direct focused channel like e-commerce. But the reality was we we had a lot of we had a lot of pain and suffering in the wholesale channel right out of the gates. We we put the product into gyms and yoga studios, and we'd seen a lot of women's brands that were following Lululemon's leads that were you know having success, building great businesses, selling within this like kind of more fitness chain um channel like mm -hmm. core power yoga equinox all these types of places and we thought we could do the same in men's and the reality was men just weren't shopping at the same volume 
um, and the sh same frequency within this point of distribution as they were in women's. And so we kind of out of necessity had to, you know, we had to find a way to survive and we were running out of money. And so we took all of our last dollars um, and we focused on a, an e-commerce effort. Um, and it was our kind of our last ditch effort to define an engine of growth that we could take back to the investment community to raise a little more money. And, you know, I'm just so grateful we made that decision when we did, because it, it was instrumental in getting us to that next round of funding. And, um, and the rest was history. We never had to go back for more money. Um, but, but we barely, you know, we were, we were months away from, from not, not gonna, not getting it. So definitely yeah, very grateful for the direct model. I, I remember those times it was super stressful and trying to figure this all out, but it, you know, it's something that uh, all of the young companies come out. And one of the things I'm proud about, about our little accelerator is that, you know, we've, we've put 102 companies through, but we've also helped them come up with $90 million in startup funding. And you remember, I mean, how important a small amount of, relatively small amount, like $100,000 can, can oh, be yeah. all the oxygen that can make it happen. So it's a, it's a continuing uh, problem uh, nowadays. And, and I think also, you know, Joe, going out, um, going to retail takes your receivable and puts it out there 90 or 120 days. And, you know, it's just so inefficient these days that um, it seems like to me that it's kind of a green light for young entrepreneurs to, to think about a robust uh, direct to consumer business and perhaps retail will fall in afterwards. A hundred percent. You know, I, I advise young entrepreneurs all the time that you want to be really strategic with your pricing and your margin structure to allow to open that door to wholesale in the future. Um, because I really do believe it's a competitive advantage to have a narrow but very focused wholesale business doing business with great dealers on your terms. I think that's very important. But when you get overextended in wholesale and it becomes too big of a percentage of your business, and you don't have that direct relationship with your customer, not only is your business just not very attractive from an investment standpoint, but um, it's it's just a dated model and you put yourself at a lot of risk. Um, I mean, I, it, I haven't heard any stats, um, but I'd be curious to know kind of how many um, businesses kind of fell victim um, to COVID and the lockdowns because they were too extended in wholesale. Um, but but those who were positioned with a direct relationship with their customer, um, I think a lot of people fared pretty well um, through the lockdown. Well, you know, in, among our membership, I, I'm going to throw a number out. I can't really defend it. But uh, basically, everybody who has a, a good or service that, that is not in team sports or gym specifically, for instance, like the YMCA, has had an unexpected increase in demand in some cases. And, like a Viore, but in, in other cases, for instance, e-bike manufacturing, you and I have a, a mutual friend there. They they went from selling what they would normally sell in a week to what they sell in a day. And uh, it's been amazing. And I, I, I think these are transformational times. I don't think we're going back to anything or, or not much that was familiar in our background. Uh, as people have embraced home officing where they can, it liberates them from the business day allows more time for your personal health or however you're going to use your time. And it takes people more to uh, to e-commerce sites uh, for shopping for efficiency purposes. I mean, Joe, I don't want to jump in my Jeep and drive up to the mall when I can uh, ride my e-bike, you know, 
down to your store as an example, um, you know, and, and, and get what I need. So I, I think that um, when the dust settles at the post-COVID world, I think it, it is going to push quite a few uh, businesses who probably deserve it into the La Brea tar pits yeah. where the rest of the dinosaurs are, right? So um, there's going to be a new, it's going to be a new future and it's going to be focused with people in your generation. That's why I'm so happy you're able to join us and pass on some advice that we can pass on to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're starting a business today, it's a 100% necessity that you're thinking about your direct relationship with your customer. You're thinking about your e-com business um, first and foremost. Um, I, I just can't sing it enough. It's it's so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think this happened to you to the uh, after. It seems like today the model's the opposite. In the old days, when we wanted to launch a brand, I'm thinking way back. Well, plenty of brands we've been involved with always involved the retail, the initial retail partner. And, um, you know, then we would kind of brag about that retail partner. And, you know, we were talking with Pam and, and uh, Beaver Theodosakis about their experience with Prana, but their aspirational brand was to get into one of the major big department stores. And, the, and it finally came true. But in today's, uh, in today's model, it, it seems like the really good retailers are finding the brands. That's true. And they want brands that bring customers. Um, and so, you know, again, if you want to do business with Nordstrom or REI or any of these big guys, go out and build a customer base first. Um, and you'll have a much better shot at not only getting in the door, but also having a, a more kind of advantageous kind of relationship that, that um, you know, it's a, it's, you know, the, the department stores are, are an interesting business. I've learned a lot. You know, I don't come from this industry. I've learned a lot. And, and uh, you know, when, when th things go badly or times are tough, um, you know, you can get, you can find yourself having some pretty tricky, tough conversations with those guys. And it's always really nice to be in a position where you don't need them, where you're not relying on them, but they're just a great compliment to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. But Joe, at some point, I think you need to confess about your that you're a recovering CPA. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I did. I, I I like to refer to myself as an accidental accountant, but recovering CPA is is uh, fitting as well. But uh, Joe, in you know, in all seriousness, in, in your background, you were exposed to a lot of businesses prior to to really starting to get your arms around this concept of Viore, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Viore was my, gosh, what is it? Like my, it was like my fourth entrepreneurial venture, but before, before I started out on my own, I, um, I worked for Ernst and Young and I call that my MBA. Cause I was fortunate enough as a young kid to bounce around from company to company auditing the books of everybody from, you know, manufacturers to biotechs to software companies and got to see a lot of different business models and a lot of different things that worked and, and that didn't. So it was a great experience. Yeah, I, I can I can only imagine. I think it's a really a huge advantage. I, I can't remember Chris Miller's background, but you know, mine is basically high school and Jeff's and all, all of our friends really didn't have a partner like you in, in the business. And it really in today's business, I think it makes a, a huge, a huge uh, difference because you need to monetize everything, right? Your account's receivable. You need to monetize it. You need your manufacturer to help you get started. The, you know, the idea leaving money laying around in your accounts receivable with uh, retail accounts are 120 days past due those days are those are expensive days 
Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am very appreciative of my background, but I will say you can always hire a bookkeeper and accountant that can help you. I mean, it's, it's great to have that experience, but the reason that Viore is successful is because we had a vision for product and we delivered on that product vision. Um, mm -hmm. and, in a way that that was really unique and authentic and and we have been laser focused i mean i consider myself a product person i you know i sat there on the floor with my designer and we we conceived everything from the ground up and we were we were just so laser focused on building incredible product and mm -hmm. and people took note of that and and it looked different and it felt different and so i would just say focus on quality focus on differentiation you know, don't copy somebody else, find your own voice. And if you are building really great product and you've got an authentic story, you will be successful. I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's it's really interesting, Joe. I think that's right. You do have a great designer and you do have your own look. That's really great. But but Joe, how did you and how did you and Chris get from having a great idea, having a concept to making a garment? <laughs> that's a big leap. Yeah. Um, well, we, we, our, our designer, um, is a girl named Rebecca Bray and, um, you know, I've been in the close, so, you know, I have a background we haven't talked about, but, you know, I spent years running, you know, little t-shirt and I had a women's contemporary line, um, out of the garage. And so I kind of stumbled on apparel because when I was 21, I was a model in, in Europe and I hated being a model, but I loved watching designers build product and build collections and, so when I got back, you know, I was working at Ernst & Young and I always needed something to fulfill that creative side of my brain. And so I started a couple of clothing brands. Neither of them really went anywhere, but I learned the process of like hiring a pattern maker and going to LA and shopping for fabrics and, and researching textile companies and, you know, going through the process of making samples and, you know, and working with the cutting facility and the sewing, cut and sew factory. It's, you know, it's something that was like, a very expensive education because I lost a lot of money pursuing little boutique clothing brands, but mm -hmm. it was such a, um, I, you know, I was always the guy that had the t-shirts that I was selling out of the back of the car or friends would come over for a drink and I would sell them a couple t-shirts that I had in my, you know, I, I always just loved product and I would love seeing product come to life. And so I got my education on, on how product is made through that. But then, you know, I also learned through that experience that building a business that can actually scale is a totally different thing. Like mm -hmm. chasing contractors around San Diego to make, you know, a couple t-shirts is one thing, but like building a business that's set up to scale with, with fabric that can be reliable and repetitive, it's a whole nother ballgame. And, and Rebecca Bray, our original, you know, and, and designer who's still, you know, our head of men's design, um, you know, she was just an incredible resource and instrumental and kind of helping me just navigate the, the process and introducing me to some great factories and uh, that are still with us today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know Rebecca. She's, she's quite a talent. You know, it's funny, a long, long time ago, this uh, guy told me back in the ski business. So for me, that's like 30 plus years ago. He told me this, there's just, he called it the rule of eights, which was uh, innovate, differentiate and communicate. And it's, it's it's such basic thinking, but it's really true, huh? Well, and it's a lot harder to do, you know, if you back into it, if you say, I want to start an apparel brand, and then you try to back into the innovation and the communication, it A, it's not authentic, but oftentimes, like, you end up looking a lot like somebody else. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, we 
were solving a problem, we had a really clear vision for what the solution looked like. And, and we, we decided to, you know, bring that to life and say, we're going to start an apparel brand to solve this problem that we've already identified. Um, and I think it's two different routes, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's talk about this, this scaling. So you, you guys were making uh, kind of boutique volumes and started to catch on. And uh, so uh, what did growth mean to you? I mean, it was a big challenge, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's been a number of challenges and, and uh, you know, it never ends. Like now our problems that we're solving are, are much different than they were back in the day. But, you know, the revenue jumps that we're seeing today and we're going to continue to see over the next several years are, are just much bigger. You know, we're seeing revenue jumps in one year of, of dollars that took us, you know, five, six years to get to. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's incredible. Like, you know, when you start seeing that multiple the, the the business multiply in these numbers um, yeah. and and there's going to be constant challenges when you're dealing with that dynamic of growth so yeah. but are those so challenges I, they're just not in the supply chain it's also in, in funding and, and financing this right absolutely i mean in the early days dollars um you know a they can be really hard to come by especially in the apparel business um mm-hmm. But B, we, we live in a very capital, we work in a very capital intensive business. You know, you've got to buy inventory. Um, you've got to warehouse that inventory. You've got to advertise this to, in order to sell, to get people to, to your website in order to sell to people. Um, and it all costs a lot of money. I think, you know, in the, in the older days, you know, and you can speak to this better than I can, Bob, but you know, my understanding is, you know, you'd buy some samples, you'd take them to a trade show, you know, you'd get pre-books, you could take those pre-books to a bank and get some funding to make the inventory. And then as soon as you sell it, you could go sell the receivable to a bank and factor it and get paid. And mm-hmm. you could build, I mean, I know I read, you know, Phil Knight's book. It's like, you can build a great business by just continuing to do that and relying on banks you know, for us to build a direct to consumer business, it was a different deal. You know, we, we didn't have receivables that you could go out and factor. We didn't have purchase orders. We had to go out and make inventory just in the hopes that through advertising, we would sell it online. It's a different working capital model. It's a lot more capital intensive. Um, so as you grow, yeah, your, your need for capital becomes significant. And, you know, one of the things that I always advise young entrepreneurs and this doesn't come from me. Um, I heard Kevin Plank, I think, talk about this, but, you know, in the early days at Under Armour, I think he was, he went to all of his factories and just, you know, essentially was able to build relationships with them to where the factories were able to fund his growth. And he didn't rely on, you know, all these sexy words like series A, series B, series C. You know, if you have a great relationship with a factory or a group of factories, they can be your series A, B, and C. And you can build a working capital model that is actually profitable and um, and helping you scale. And that that's what we were so fortunate to be able to do. And I I just owe so much gratitude to our factories for believing in our business from an early day um, to where we were able to build a really great direct-to-consumer brand with a very minimal capital investment. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. I think... Uh... If you look back on a lot of the brands that we know, Joe, it's been a similar story. I'm thinking, you know, like uh, Jeff at Sanook, he, he had great, a really great factory, really believed in him. And they were actually very proud of him. They were happy to help. 
you know, and that's, uh, that is really fundamental to that initial pile of cash is really fantastic. You know, the, um, so what, what did you get out of Phil Knight's book? Oh man. I think the, the biggest takeaway is that it all just take, it all starts with a single step and that, you know, it, to build a brand like Nike, while Phil might, you know, come, you know, you might think of him as a genius when you look at what Nike is today. He was just an ordinary guy that wanted to sell shoes. And he had, a, you know, a lot of the same growing pains that that we've experienced. And, you know, it was one step in front of the other. And then opportunities present themselves. And you you capitalize on that opportunity. And but that it's that it's a slow process that you need to be patient and and that success doesn't come overnight and mm-hmm. and every business is not without its challenges and you know it's the same thing for Viore we get patted on the back all the time you know people think that we're geniuses for building this incredible brand but you know the reality is you know it was we took it one day at a time and we just tried to make good decisions that day and then you look back 6 7 years later and you know just a series of good decisions and making the right long-term, having that, that long-term mindset day after day has, has born a brand that really means something to people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but again, it's just, it's not manufactured overnight. Absolutely. I think, you know, part of uh, our community's success somehow is the DNA of our, of our little aspirational place where we live. I, I don't know if we really realize it, but when you think about our circle of friends, it's a pretty unusual group of people to begin with. Unusual <laughs> is the right word, right? <laughs> uh, certainly fun and uh, and and different. But uh, there's there's something about the community that really uh, embraces change and and seems to propel us into new things. And it's I can tell you from my point of view, it's really uh, fantastic to stand on the sidelines and watch watch what you guys have done. We're we're all super proud of you and. And as you know, everybody's claiming your success all around. Yeah, we, we helped Joe. We bought those expensive T-shirts because he's going to go out of business. It's all. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. We're very, very proud of you, Joe. Good, really good job. And so, uh, so what's what's next for the brand? You, you just hanging on, and I mean, you're going to grow, 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 or when is grow growth enough? You know. Yeah, I mean, we we have very big aspirations for the brand, and much bigger today than we ever did the day we started it. And I have so much energy. I'm just so inspired by our team. I have world-class operators running every department for the business with incredible backgrounds in in dynamic growth-oriented businesses. We've got people thinking outside the box. We've got a culture that celebrates innovation and creativity, not ego. I think that's one of the things that makes us so dynamic as a brand is just that we we don't have a lot of big egos, but we've got a lot of really talented people and we're swimming in the same direction energetically. So we're having a lot of fun and we're bringing new ideas to life. You know, we just launched a hundred percent sustainable, uh, we're calling it our Eco Outerlands outerwear collection with REI. It's off to a great start. Um, you know, women's has been a really incredible addition to, to the brand. So now we're a dual gender brand, which is where we always wanted it to be. We're having a lot of success with women's and um, we've just put a, a stake in the ground and we said, we're going to be a sustainable business. We've always made sustainable choices, but we've never really taken the time to quantify it. 
Um, mm-hmm. and we've never gone out and made it a primary communication of our brand, but you know, we're really proud to announce that currently about 50% of the materials we buy are made from recycled or organic materials. We're going to have that at 80% in the next two years. So by 2022, we'll be at about 80% recycled or organic. Um, we're going plastic neutral. So first step is we're removing single-use plastics from our supply chain. And, you know, our friends at Patagonia kind of helped guide us through how to do that. Um, but we're moving to what's called the roll pack method, removing poly bags from our supply chain. Thrilled about that. Um, we just went carbon neutral and made a huge investment in offsetting 100% of our carbon emissions last year in partnership with Climate Neutral, um, mm-hmm. which is a certifying third party. So we're very excited about that. And then we have awesome programs in place in terms of how we're engaging with our community, um, taking leadership positions on things that are important to us, and and all the while building an incredible culture within our own four walls. And um, you know we're having a lot of fun. We're building a company that has deep values that is going to make a positive impact in the world. And and our vision for the brand has always been to inspire people to live a healthier and happier life. And you know, we want to reach as many people as possible with that message. And so whether it's people or planet, we're going to we're going to continue to invest in a better future for our planet, for our people and use this brand for good. And so that's really energizing. And so I'm very, very excited about where this brand's going to go. Um, in a lot of respects, I think we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe, I don't want to say a word after that, man. That is a, super inspiring from the heart, and I, I really totally believe in the very same thing. So it's it's great to see it come to life in a small brand, a local brand that's that's come to scale and is, is sticking to it and growing, which is what you're doing. You're maturing into your values now, and it's, it's fantastic. So, uh, wow. Well, thanks so much for devoting time with us, this Joe. And for everybody that's listening, I want you to know that uh, – at San Diego Sport Innovators. We often call on Joe, and if you've listened to this, you know why now. He's full of uh, inspiration. The brand is inspirational. And thanks so much, Joe. It's awesome. Thanks, Bob. Anytime, man. Anytime I can can jump on and talk to you, uh, it's always an honor, man. Always an honor and a privilege. Thanks. Thanks so much. See you around town soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Joe. That closes today's uh, uh, podcast. It's, uh, as usual, very inspiring and, and thought-provoking. I'd just like to leave you with one thought that I heard growing up, and, and that is, uh, come on up to the high road. There's plenty of room. Mm-hmm.